It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Couquier, senior editor and the host of Babbage. In the wake of the first fatal accident with a self-driving car by Tesla, we will discuss how to safely test autonomous vehicles using virtual reality. Here is what Tesla said in a press release after the accident. This is the first known fatality in just over 130 million miles, where autopilot was activated. Among all vehicles in the U.S., there is a fatality every 94 million miles. What they are saying, in effect, is that people will still drive worse than the driverless cars do. But should that be the standard? We'll return to that story in just a minute. We will also examine the question of algorithmic transparency and whether there should be a right to explanation on automated decisions that affect lots of people. More about that later in the show. First, we turn to a new study that suggests that the way we've been measuring how the climate has changed over time by using fossilized marine life is flawed. Climate models are very much integrating the ocean and the atmosphere, land and ice sheets. So our studies focus on the marine sediments and the marine realm. But if we're seeing inaccuracies in the dates up to 3,000 years, sometimes even more, depending on the sample size, um, this can really impact how the marine realm is responding to changes in ice sheets or atmosphere. Um, So it's really all about the timing. And climate models are very much dependent on that. That was lead author Jody Wycheck of the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So how significant are the results? Here is Ms. Wycheck again. This is a really big finding. So if the age dates are inaccurate by 1,000 to 3,000 years, can really impact some people's interpretation. With me on the line to delve into this topic is Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent. Matt, before we tackle the bigger question, let's talk about what these scientists have found out. So scientists have used carbon dating to measure how the climate has changed over vast periods of time. What's wrong with this way of measuring climate change? It's not carbon dating that tells us what's happened in the past. Carbon dating is a timing mechanism. We use the carbon that we find in the, or in the bodies of extinct organisms or animals that died a long time ago to tell us when they died, and then we look at the rest of the sediment around their bodies and say, uh-huh, okay, right, so this, this layer is this many millions of years old or this, hundred, this many thousands of years old, and then we can say, all right, so this many thousand years ago, we had a lot of precipitation because we can see that in other sediments or sometimes in other materials found in the animal's body. Okay, and so what have the researchers done to uncover that there's this inconsistency? They're paleontologists and geologists. And the key group of animals that we're dealing with here are known as foraminifera. These are tiny, tiny organisms that during their lives build a very, very small shell. And into that shell, they store bits of carbon that they find in the environment. Some of that carbon is slightly radioactive and unstable and allows us to date when the animals died. The thing is, Some foraminifera, when they get preserved in the rock record as fossils, end up remarkably clear and pristine, perfectly preserved. 
and some end up kind of cruddy and opaque. And researchers for the past decades have always assumed, well, you know, a foraminifera is a foraminifera. You grab some, you date them, that tells you how old the sediment around you is. But these researchers questioned whether or not one foraminifera that's clear is giving the same signal as a foraminifera that, for example, is opaque and kind of cruddy. And the answer to that question is no, they are not the same. How does this affect our climate change models and how we think about man-made climate change and how and the degree to which the Earth is climate is changing? That's a really good question, and it's and it's the big one that I've been tinkering with for the past couple of days. That there is no question in our mind that our polar ice core data, our cave deposit data, and our tree ring data, which tell us tons and tons of information about the past thousands of years that those are not affected by this. So we know that a lot of our climate models are still fine. But when it comes to looking at marine layers, marine sediment, and marine isotopes associated with these foraminifera, our dates are going to be wrong, and there's going to be a lot of recalibration that's going to need to be done. Well, that's how science works. We stand on the shoulders of giants. You know what I love best about this story? That it was uncovered by a graduate student. I know. Isn't that great? Jody Weisich at the University of Wisconsin-Madison is the one who looked into all of this, and wow, this is going to just send shockwaves to the geology and paleoclimatology community. Thanks a lot, Matt. No problem, Ken. Take care. Next, we're going to talk about algorithms, and in particular, the idea that algorithms will do things and we may not exactly know why we are held accountable by this prediction that it makes, that we will be eligible for a loan or eligible for surgery. With me to talk about this issue and the question of the transparency that should be brought upon algorithms is Tom Standage, our deputy editor, who recently wrote a special report on artificial intelligence. Welcome, Tom. Hello. Tom, what is the problem? Well, it's a sort of black box problem. There are more and more big computer systems that are making really important decisions about our lives, whether we like it or not, whether we get a loan, whether we're approved for surgery, what news we're shown when we go on the internet, who we're recommended to go on a date with, you know, if we're using educational systems at school, you know, what order are we shown modules in, what job ads are we offered? And people are worried that if you don't know how the inside of that algorithm works, you can't be sure that it's not giving an answer that's either incorrect or biased and discriminatory in some way. And there have been a few examples of this. There was a Google system that infamously labelled black people in some images as gorillas. And this is because it had been trained using images that only included white people. So this is what people are are worried about, that the algorithms that we increasingly rely on are not impartial. Now, in privacy law in Europe, they're introducing the right to be forgotten. There's calls for the idea of introducing a right to explanation around the algorithms. Do you think that this will work? Probably wouldn't work at the moment. And one of the things that this will do is increase the urgency of finding ways to interpret these systems. What are some of those ways that we can make the systems interpretable to humans? One of the ways we can do it is by building hybrid systems. So you use an AI system which isn't the whole decision-making part of the process. It supplies an input to a a set of rules which are more easily understandable. Old computer software, the sort of traditional way of doing it is you write a set of rules and 
and it's very much you're following a, a series of steps and it's clear what's happening. So you might be able to use the insights that an AI can give you as one of the inputs to that and say, well, you know, this combined with this, combined with this, combined with what this neural network thought over here were the factors that uh, led us to this decision. More interesting, I think, is the idea of rule extraction. And this is where you take a system that's been trained and you essentially interrogate it a lot in, a, in an automated way and extract rules from it. So you end up with a, a system of rules that act in a very, very similar way and are understandable. So it sounds like it is feasible, albeit difficult, for there to be a right of explanation around algorithms. Do you think that's going to be the future for law? I think there's probably going to have to be something like this. Uh, at the moment, you can already ask companies in some circumstances to say what data they have about you. And if they make a decision that you disagree with, then you know it's not unreasonable that you should be able to ask. And the question is, can they actually answer that question? I think where we're probably going to get into trouble is that there are companies that want to protect their algorithms. They're not necessarily really black boxes, but they want to pretend that they are. So if you're Google or you're Facebook, you don't necessarily want to be telling people how your algorithms work because then they're going to try and game them. So the, the real question, I think, legally, and we're going to see this in Europe, I'm sure, is how do you allow a company to maintain that opacity as a trade secret rather than as a means of preventing discrimination or anything like that? If you have something to say about this week's show, please find us on Facebook or on Twitter. You can tweet us directly at Economist Radio, or you can email us at radio at economist.com. On last week's show, we discussed the Juno spacecraft, and on Twitter, we posed the question, quote, what will NASA's probe Juno say when it arrives at Jupiter on July 4th? We received wonderful replies. Many people said, happy birthday, America, because, of course, it would be Independence Day in the United States. Stephen Lowe added, the probe wouldn't say anything. Probes don't talk. And even if it could say something, sound doesn't travel in a vacuum. Well, that is true. Our listener is being very literal. Jeffrey Johns, another user, said, something about alimony, I expect. Now, I'm sure many people are wondering, what a cryptic thing. Well, here's what's going on. When Jupiter was discovered and its moons, they had to name the moons. And so they named the moons after the mistresses of Jupiter from the myth. Juno is the name of Jupiter's wife. And so, if you will, the astronomers have been hatching this joke for 400 years. Finally, the Juno probe is the wife of Jupiter arriving to see her mate, with all the mistresses revolving around him. Thank you for your comments. Please share your thoughts with us about this week's show. Next, Tesla has come under criticism since the first fatal accident of a driver in a car on autopilot. This raises questions about how safe the technology is and how we could test it without having to put lives at risk. With me is Paul Markley, our innovation editor. Hello, Paul. Hello. So first, do we know what happened during the accident? He said that the vehicle was on autopilot, which is uh, really, it's not a fully self-driving system, although its name implies that it is. It's more like many of the systems in vehicles now. They're, they're kind of an, a smart um, cruise control that has certain features, but you're not supposed to take your hands off the wheel, and you're certainly supposed to carry on paying attention to the road. Well, in this case, the vehicle failed to notice, or its systems failed to notice, that there was a large white truck crossing the road ahead, and um, neither did the driver, apparently. So what do they think went wrong with the system? It is possible that there was some confusion between the forward-facing camera and radar system on the vehicle as to exactly what there was ahead. 
Both apparently were looking at a white lorry under a bright sky. It is not known exactly what's happened, but it's possible that the camera thought that this was a sign in the road, in fact, and the radar confirmed there was space underneath it. That's purely speculation. But it's that sort of issue that the crash investigators will be looking at. So what are researchers going to do to test the safety of autonomous vehicles? Obviously, there's a lot more work that needs to be done on the road. But as this accident has shown, testing vehicles and developing vehicles in real-life conditions on real roads is a potentially dangerous thing to do. However, simulators, there's a number around for vehicles already, are another alternative. And I, I was at the opening of a very powerful new simulator at the University of Warwick in Britain, which is going to be used specifically to test what you might call smart vehicles, which are those that are fitted with autonomous driving features and other new technologies that are coming along. So how does the technology work? Well, this particular one, you can put a complete vehicle inside the simulator and around it is projected a 360-degree high definition of the surroundings. In this case, it's built up from digital maps of some 48 kilometers of roads in and around Coventry, together with buildings and scenery and virtual traffic, cyclists, pedestrians, and even dogs scampering into the road all of which the operators control in real time. Now, I had a go in this, and um, I must admit, I did crash into a couple of vehicles. I wasn't very good at the... Uh, I was driving it myself. Um, I'm sure the computer could have driven it uh, better than I could. But Paul, <laughs> were you obeying the speed limit? Uh, yeah, I was. I just found it all rather weird, you know. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's very lifelike, and it has motion, motion things in it, so when you're braking and cornering, and even the thump of a virtual pothole comes through... It's partly to test the self-driving features that this machine will be used for, but also, very interestingly, it's to test people like me because there are cameras looking at me in the car because what they're looking at here is how I respond to what the self-driving vehicle is doing. And, you know, at what point do I notice that um, it doesn't know what it's doing anymore, that it's lost connection with another vehicle or, or, or something's gone wrong because... As, you, as we all know, evidence from our use of satellite navigation devices is that we will follow these things slavishly, even if we end up hundreds of miles away, even in different countries to where we intended to go. So there is you know, the possibility of too much faith being placed in the machine. So, so they're looking at both the hardware and, if you like, the software in terms of the people who will sit in driverless cars of the future. So this testing helps us in some ways harden the infrastructure. Is there anything else you think that needs to happen before self-driving cars are ready for prime time? I think at the moment people have to accept that even though you may have a system called autopilot or whatever it's called in other cars as well, it is not completely robotic. What it is doing is assisting you to drive. So it may be helping you to brake better. It may be helping you to overtake better. But it's not entirely removing responsibility for driving that car from you. And that's going to be a difficult thing, a difficult transition, I think, for many people to take. Until we have systems that are obviously very robust, it's not going to be possible to get into a car, fall asleep or read an iPad app while the car whisks you away from A to B. You're basically still in charge of it. You're still technically driving it. That future time may come when you can sit back, but it's not there yet. And in the interim, we're going to have to get used to it. And I think that message needs to be got over much firmer to motorists that... 
when we talk about autonomous cars and self-driving features in vehicles, they're not there yet. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read Paul's piece on driverless cars and Matt's article on measuring climate change, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or check us out online. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.